Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to Magnify, a podcast dedicated to equipping Christians with biblical truths through the lens of apologetics so that we can magnify Jesus Christ in our daily lives and make him known to the world. I'm your host, Justin Begley, and I'm so grateful that you decided to join in with us today as we walk through the book of Jude. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review so that others can see this podcast and listen too. In America today, we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly post-Christian. The Christian website got questions defines post-Christian as a society that is, quote, historically based in Christian ideas and follows simplified Christian values, but rejects the authority of Christianity and does not consider it the basis of either ethics or its culture. It further says that, quote, a post-Christian society selectively claims virtues rooted in a Christian worldview while selectively rejecting the truths that make those values possible. Now, as a result, a post-Christian society eventually shifts from, quote, assuming Christian values to ignoring them, to resenting them, to repressing them, and eventually to persecuting them. What was once Christian and is now post-Christian will eventually become anti-Christian, end quote. Now, this seems to me to be the state of, the state of affairs that we currently live in, especially in the West. Now, at the same time, many are claiming that we also live in what's called a post-truth society. And in fact, in November 2016, Oxford Dictionaries declared post-truth the word of the year. Now, post-truth is defined as, quote, circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, if America is increasingly becoming post-Christian, if it isn't already, And if it's already a post-truth society that we live in, then we are actually in for a rough ride. One that's been, I think, loading up for a very long time. We're already experiencing the effects of it. Our politics have completely divided the entire nation on the basis of blue versus red, with proponents of each side kind of claiming that their opponents uh, are attempting to destroy the country and rip apart the entire constitution. Now, a subset of our culture has declared the murder of the unborn a virtue, claiming that it's somehow good and moral to sacrifice your child on the altar of convenience and career ambition. Many in our culture today have also completely rejected the Christian sex ethic, calling it immoral and encouraging instead the redefinition of marriage. Now, our, our corporations even, they our corporations performatively signal their virtue by posting political slogans on their social media accounts and by embracing critical race theory as a tool, as a kind of a, a training tool for, di- for diversity purposes. Now, critical race theory, by the way, is an incredibly divisive and regressive ideology that is Marxist in its foundation and pits racial minorities against races that have historically held more influence or power, as critical theorists would say, uh, that primarily being uh, white people. Now, CRT says that life is a power struggle between the oppressor, white people, and the oppressed, black people, or other minority groups. It says that because whites, by virtue of their group identity and not on the basis of their individual conduct, because whites have historically 
held cultural power and oppressed others, those who are the oppressed, racial minorities, have the privilege, they have the exclusive privilege of access to the truth about what constitutes oppression simply because of quote, quote unquote, uh, lived experiences. But it's important to note that lived experiences doesn't necessarily mean that a given person has actually ever experienced oppression. It only requires that their group identity has experienced oppression at some point in history. But I digress. This isn't a podcast about critical theory, so I don't want to go too much more into this. But this is what our culture is pushing. Greg Kokel, the Christian apologist and author of the book Tactics, has a really good piece over uh, at his website, Stand to Reason, about this. It's, it's called Critical Race Theory, Civil Rights Upside Down. I encourage you to go check that out if you want more information as to uh, what is seeping into our government and our schools and uh, really our corporations as well, and even to some extent our churches. But yet another uh, subset of the population, including our government even, has started to label parents as domestic terrorists simply for showing up to school board meetings to try to influence the decisions that are, that are made for how their, chi- their, their children are educated. I saw a story earlier today from Loudoun County School District in Virginia where a father of one of the female students was actually arrested. Why? Why was he arrested? Well, well, he was arrested because he was upset that the school board was attempting to conceal uh, and unwilling to properly deal with a boy who had actually raped his ninth grade daughter in one of the school's bathrooms a few months prior. The boy was a was uh, I don't know I don't know if he was uh, someone who identified as a, as a male or if he was transgender in, in some regard, but he was wearing a, a female skirt and entered one of the bathrooms uh, that this girl was apparently in and, and using, and he did so apparently to do something this, that was absolutely heinous and sexually assault this this poor young girl. When the school found out about it, they called the father claiming that his daughter had just been physically assaulted. But when he arrived, he discovered quite quite obviously that that, that this event that happened was much more severe than just a physical assault. Instead of getting the police involved, the school wanted to actually keep this whole ordeal in-house. They didn't want to actually press criminal charges against this, this boy that had done this really horrible thing. And as a result, the father quite naturally got upset. And then because he was yelling and all that, the school actually went and called the police on the father. Not the kid that raped his daughter on their premises, but on the father for getting upset about it. And he was arrested for disorderly conduct by the police. Do we see how backwards that is? Just completely backwards. The man's daughter was raped by another student at the school, and the school had no interest in getting the police involved. It turns out that this kid was actually just simply transferred to another school. The school board didn't want to deal with it, so they sent him to another school, and then he did the same thing to another girl, again. Why did the school want to cover this up, right? Like, that's the natural question. Why, why in the world would they cover something like this up? Well, it's... It turns out that the school board has actually been attempting to implement a quote-unquote inclusive policy to accommodate transgender students to allow them to use the bathroom of the gender uh, that they identify with. And this story would just, I guess, 
to them, be too inconvenient to, to, to the school board. It turns out, though, uh, this actually became national news because it's such, it's such a crazy story that the national news coverage actually picked it up. Um, so thankfully, it backfired on the school di- district. But I share this story and these other examples because this is just an example of what a post-Christian mixed with a post-truth culture leads to. Our society is just losing its moral and ethical foundation so quickly and so much so that some elected school board officials are actually willing to brush the rape of one of their students under the rug in order to further promote and push a political agenda because to them, I guess, the narrative and the performative signaling is just more important than the truth. In light of so much injustice and perversion and division and immorality, what should we do? What should the church do? How should the church respond to how this culture is shifting? Well, thankfully, the Bible actually speaks to this. So if you have your Bible handy, open it up to the book of Jude. It's a, it's a small book in the New Testament. It's just really one chapter, uh, and it's actually the second last book in the Bible. It's, it's just before Revelation. So Jude, who is the brother of, of James and probably the half-brother of Jesus, uh, likely wrote this letter to a group of Jewish Christians who were kind of experiencing some hardship within the church and the surrounding culture. As it turned out, false teachers had actually crept into the local church and were perverting the truth of the gospel. Now, as I walk through this book, I want you to keep in mind that Jude is directly addressing ungodly people who have kind of infiltrated the church, but I think that we can actually isomorphically map what Jude is talking about to our culture uh, at large, to our culture more generally. Because I want to do this because in in many unfortunate ways, the culture is actually becoming incredibly influential in the church. So my goal here is to kind of help us become aware of what's going uh, going on kind of in our culture and what's going on around us, how it's coming into the church, and how we as Christians can actually go about contending for the faith in light of the dark culture that we live in. So starting in verse 3, Jude says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So Jude actually says that he wanted to write to discuss something else. He wanted to write to them to discuss the beauty of the gospel and to share with them some insight on the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. But instead, he feels like he has to deal with another issue. He has to actually halt his own desires to write about the salvation that we've all received and instead address something that is, I think he knows, that is is very dangerous something that is very dangerous that is happening in the church. And, in, and instead of discuss salvation, discuss with them and encourage them to contend for the faith. Now that word contend in the Greek is pronounced epigonizomai, which is basically derived from the root word agon, which means to struggle or to fight. So Jude is effectively telling these Christians to fight for or to contend for the faith. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, in commentating on Jude uh, verse 3, said this. He says, 
The great business of the saints is to defend, if necessary with their lives, the faith once delivered to them. We are put in trust with the gospel. We are trustees of a divine deposit of invaluable truth, and we must be true to our, to our trust at all costs. Now, why is Jude telling Christians to defend for the faith? Well, look at verse 4. He says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago has secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So Jude is warning these Christians of certain people who claim to be Christians, but who actually abuse God's grace, viewing it as kind of a, an excuse to openly and blatantly sin. But we can, def- we can definitely kind of see this in our culture, right? So, you know, so-called cultural Christians claim to be Christians, but live lives that are in no way reflect the transformative power of the gospel. Hence, kind of the reason that we live in a post-Christian culture. It's kind of a recognition of general kind of sort of loosely held Christian uh, foundations, but we don't actually care about any of those. We're not going to live by those. It doesn't matter. That's kind of what post-Christian goes by, right? So, some Christian values are still loosely applied in the post-Christian culture. They're kind of given a nod, but all the others, you know, the ones that maybe we might consider unpalatable or we just don't like those, those are rejected. They're rejected as immoral, and those who kind of disagree with us that for rejecting those, if, we, if they disagree that we rejected those, well, they're just bigots, right? So if someone believes that marriage, for instance, is between a man and a woman, he's a homophobe. If someone believes that men and women are fundamentally different by nature and yet complementary in ability and purpose, then that person doesn't believe in women's rights. If someone believes that, the un- that, that, an, un- that an unborn child should be granted the right to life, well, again, he apparently doesn't believe in women's rights. So that's what the world says. This is the standard that the world has set in its post-Christian and post-truth mindset. Now, interestingly, Jude calls them ungodly people. He says that they actually deny Jesus Christ. I think this is really interesting because so many Christians today give excuse for certain people within the church or church staff or church leaders even who are living in open sin. I hear it all the time. Oh, he's saved despite the fact that greed is what drives all of his decisions. Or, Oh, she's saved, despite the fact that she openly champions abortion and even applauds it. Oh, that preacher is saved, despite the fact that he regularly preaches a different gospel, whether it be works-based or prosperity or progressive Christianity. No, that is post-truth, post-Christian thinking. Thinking that people are saved when their lives have no indication of it, That's post-truth, post-Christian thinking. Now, what I'm not saying is I'm not saying that we should go around making salvation judgments. We don't know what their heart is. But if we see someone living in sin and we care about those people, and we should, if 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 we really think that there are brothers and sisters in Christ, then we should care about their holiness. We should care about the gospel they preach. We should care about them being a faithful ambassador to Christ and not an ambassador to whatever their flesh wants. That's what we should care about. Not, oh, they're saved, they're fine, they can abuse the grace of God. No, we 
have to be concerned for our brothers and sisters' holiness. We'll see this later on in Jude. But moreover, if we look at this verse again, but kind of in another translation, Jude says that these people that he's talking about, these false teachers that have kind of infiltrated the church, he says that these people were designated for this judgment or condemnation long ago. So they, they reject the authority of God and deny the only person who can give them eternal life, or as Jude says, our only, emphasis there on only, our only master and Lord. If you reject them, you're destined for judgment. And, you know, God's elect, who he, cho- who he chooses before the beginning of time, he knows who his people are, right? God's elect. Those who are not of his elect, those false teachers, those who reject the authority of God, those who deny Jesus Christ, those who, do, who live ungodly lives, they were destined long, destined long ago for condemnation. That's what Jude says. Why does he say this? Because they reject, quote, our only master and Lord. Now that word only would imply that, yeah, all, re- all religions are not the same. They are not all equally valid. They are not all of the same value. Christianity has an exclusive claim to truth and an exclusive and it and is the exclusive way to God. Only through Jesus can you have access to the Father. That's why Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says it this way, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And he's referring to the name of Jesus Christ. Again, I want to appeal to Charles Spurgeon who said, if sin could drag an angel from the skies, and we're going to see this in verse 6 in a second. He says, if sin could drag an angel from the skies, it may well pluck a minister from the pulpit, a deacon from the communion table, or a church member out of the midst of his brothers and sisters. Perseverance and holiness is the sign of eternal salvation. If we forsake the Lord and turn back to our former ways of evil, it will be the evidence that we never really believed in Christ and that there are there was no true work of grace in our hearts. That is a word that the world needs to hear today. That's a word that the church needs to hear today. Christ followers need to pursue holiness, for this is God's will for our lives, to be sanctified, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. And we also have to be concerned for our brothers and our sisters' holiness as well, which means that, that if we see our brothers and sisters, our, our, our church members, our, our friends that are believers living in sin, you don't need to be ungracious with them, but you need to graciously and truthfully call out, call that out and encourage your brother and sister in, uh, unto holiness because we should care for the holiness of ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, next Jude goes on to describe the type of judgment that such ungodly people are actually going to face. Picking up in verse 5, he says, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. 
In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the, archa the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things that they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Now here Jude is actually listing three examples of historical hypostasy, that kind of rejection of, of God's authority, um, a, renun a renunciation of your faith. So these three examples are the Israelites not believing that God who delivered them out of Egypt could actually give them the land of the Canaanites. Also the fall of the angels from heaven, uh, possibly referring to the, some of the angels that followed Satan. Um, who are kind of now being kept in eternal change until the final judgment. And lastly, Sodom and Gomorrah, who were just wiped out by fire under God's wrath for their wickedness. Now Jude mentions these historical illustrations to explain the kind of judgment that these false teachers will receive for their wickedness. And it's interesting because Jude is actually effectively saying that although it seems that the ungodly sometimes seem to be at an advantage in life, Although it may seem that they're having a good time and are having fun, and although it may seem that they're actually protected from the judgment of the world or from cancellation, they're not protected from the coming judgment of the Lord. Now, the wickedness of the ungodly will be dealt with. That's what, that's what Jude is trying to illustrate here. It's going to be dealt with with uh, just as God dealt with the unfaithful Israelites and the disloyal and disobedient angels and uh, the wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. Just like he dealt with those, he's going to deal with the wickedness of false teachers and a culture who's trying to uh, infiltrate the church and who is just living in abject sin constantly. Picking up in verse 11, Jude says, Woe to them! They have taken, away, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And this is another interesting thing because Judah is saying that the actions of these false teachers are actually nothing new. See, there's all this historical precedent, precedent for it. This has been done before. I think Ecclesiastes says that uh, nothing is new under the sun. So, that, so that these wicked people are following the path of Cain who out of jealousy killed his brother. They were following the way of Balaam, who was a prophet for hire. If you remember uh, back to the book of Numbers, the king of the Moabites, Balak, hired him, Balaam, to curse the Israelites who were encroaching on the Moabite encampment. But when Balaam couldn't do it, he tried like seven times, he couldn't actually deliver a curse on them. He found another way to do it. Numbers 31 verse 16 says that Balaam actually had advised Moabite women to go and seduce Israelite men. And so when the Israelite men gave in to that temptation and married these Moabite women, that was, a direct uh, that was directly disobeying God's command to not intermarry with those who were not God's people. And so consequently, a plague actually went and spread amongst the Israelites. And as a result of that, Balaam probably 
found favor with King Balak and then profited from it. So that's what he's saying. Like there's greed caused him to do immorality. And that's what these false teachers uh, were probably doing, profiting uh, or prophesying for profit. And lastly, Jude says that the false teachers were following the way of Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses in Numbers 16. He was rejecting the, author- the God-given authority of Moses, just as these false teachers had been accused by Jude of rejecting. So, in each of these cases, these people were disobedient, kind of on their own volition, disobedient to the Lord, and were unwilling to submit to his authority. Now we see the ramp we see this rampant in our culture, right? Don't we? Like we 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 see this constantly, this this unwillingness to su- submit to the authority of God. And I think this has become in part uh as at least come into the church as well, I think. In the US, people are jealous of those who make more money than them and so push for policies to go ahead and redistribute wealth. We live in a culture where it's okay to vandalize and loot and steal from private businesses so long as it's in the name of social justice and equity. In some states, it's actually legal to kill an unborn baby up until the point of birth. Why? Because, well, of so-called women's rights, where mothers can actually go and end the life of their children so that they can live a prosperous life and have a good career. We live in a culture where news outlets can draw in millions of dollars a year selling lies and propaganda and just going ahead and fueling the hate and division in this country. Even in some of our churches, we have pastors who will get on stage and ask people to donate to the church so that they can finance their extravagant lifestyles while closing off their church doors when people need shelter during a hurricane. Our culture um, and these false teachers are following the way of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. We have a culture of envy and entitlement, greed, sexual immorality, and skepticism and rejection of authority. And this is incredibly destructive. Let's look to verses 12 and 13. Jude says, These people are blemishes at your love feasts eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. This is the current and coming state of apostates. This is what happens to them. They're trees that don't produce fruit, They die even twice. They're clouds that can't even produce rain. They're waves that just foment in their shame. And they're wandering stars who just end up in blackest darkness forever. Judgment will come for those who have denied Christ and who live ungodly lives. Verses 14 to 16 say, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and fault finders. 
They follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves, and flatter others for their own advantage. Now, God will hold all of us accountable individually for every deed that each of us did and every word that each of us said. Those who follow their own desires as the world does, chasing money and sex and power, will be rightfully judged for that. Those who boast about themselves and walk pridefully and manipulate people into getting what they want and deceive people with their words to get what they want, as the world does, they'll be rightfully judged by God for that as well. Jude, but Jude wants us to be alert to these things. He, he wants us to be aware that, that the world and the culture and, and uh, the, the false teachers that were impacting these Jewish Christians, he wants the reader to be astutely aware to what these people are doing. Picking up in verse 17, Jude says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow a mere natural instincts, and who do not have the Spirit. The church has to be alert to these false teachers and false ideolo- ideologies that sometimes influence or even kind of infiltrate the church because any idea or worldview that is contrary to God's uh, written truth is by definition a lie, and thus it's divisive and worldly. False teachers that, that do this, Jude says, are scoffers who live by their own and for their own desires. They gratify their flesh because they do not have the spirit, Jude says. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is why we need to be on guard against things like CRT and top-down government influence and control and the world sex ethic that is opposed to the Christian sex ethic and progressive Christianity and social justice and equity as they're defined by the cultural left and all these other cultural movements that might go and divide the church. We need to be on guard against these things because such ideologies are anti biblical. They're completely against what what God's truth says because they were created by those who tried to, in Jude's words, mock God and his people. These are people who don't have the spirit and have thus not been regenerated and so are still actually dead in their sins. We have to be on guard against these people. So how do we actually go about doing that? How do we guard ourselves against the influence of the world and the influence of false teachers that might try to infiltrate the church? How do we actually go about contending for the faith as Jude tells the church to do? Well, thankfully, Jude tells us. Look at verses 20 to 23. He says, But you, dear friends, by building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love, as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So, given this verse, how do we contend for the faith? Let's break it down. The first thing, we build ourselves up in holy faith. What does that mean? Well, It means that we are to actually go ahead and grow in the faith. We are to become more and more mature Christians. How do we do that? Well, through sanctification. Sanctification is this idea of setting apart, where God sets apart 
us from sin and says and instead sets us apart to himself. Now in our sanctification that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit, that regenerative power of renewing our heart, renewing our mind, setting our hearts and, and minds and, and everything that we are on Christ, we get to grow more and more in the likeness of Jesus. And when we participate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, he grants us the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Now, as we continue to be filled with the Spirit and be sanctified, we come to more fully love God and love people. So that's what it means to build ourselves up in our holy faith. But there's a second thing. We pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Jude says to pray in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, we know that we need to pray to God, right? That's, that's obvious. That's how we grow our relationship with Him and become closer to Him. But how do we go about an, uh, ensuring that we're actually praying in the Spirit? I like the way that Pastor Jerry Gillis at the chapel in Buffalo, uh, Buffalo, New York, says about this. He says that if you want to ensure that your prayers are Spirit-led, make sure that your prayers are Scripture-fed. So if you want to make sure that your prayers are Spirit-led, Make sure that they are scripture-fed. That's what we do. We open the Word of God, the Spirit-inspired text, and pray God's Word back to Him. You know, if you do that, your will, like your, your will, will actually start to look a whole lot more like God's will. Why? Because when your prayers are scripture-fed, you are praying in a way that is consistent with God's truth. That is, consistent with the revelation of God. And that means that our hearts and our minds will be set on God's heart and on his desires so that our desires will reflect what he desires. So if you want to ensure that your prayers are spirit-led, make sure that they are scripture-fed. There's a third thing. We keep ourselves in God's love as we wait for the mercy of Jesus to bring eternal life. That's what verse 21 says, right? What does that mean? What does it mean to keep ourselves in God's love? Well, I think that Jesus answers this in John chapter 15, verses 4 to 5. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that word abide means to remain or to reside. So that is, we are to remain in Jesus. That's an imperative. We abide, if we abide in Christ, we will keep ourselves in God's love as we wait for Jesus to bring eternal life. What else? Well, we are to be merciful to those who doubt. Now, this is the aim of apologetics, right? Connecting the head to the heart. When we do that, when we actually go about connecting the head to, to the heart, to engaging in apologetics and evangelism, we provide good reason for the hope that's within us. We don't do that in a way that is malicious or argumentative. We do it in a way that's merciful and gracious and, and, and loving. And I think that, uh, that it's, often a, it's often a shame to see because I see quite frequently in churches across America 
and I generally, I, I think this is getting a little bit better, but you know, there's still there's still some of it. I see quite frequently Christians uh, or Christian churches that actually condemn questions. Now they don't literally say like, "Oh, I rebuke you for for asking that," or "I condemn you for asking that," but it's not even necessarily said that way when people ask tough questions about the Bible or about God. But a lot of Christians just kind of tend to get all weird um, uh, when 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 questions that might be tough or that might seem like, "Oh, well, you know, why is he asking if 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 God was angrier in the, in the Old Testament than the New Testament, or why is he questioning whether or not you know?" God is the basis for morality. Why is he questioning whether or not God created the universe? It's like Christians kind of get all weird about that because we're not always prepared to deal with it. Our first thought is kind of, you know, is this guy a heretic? Is he an unbeliever? Like what's going on here? And then we don't actually go ahead and adequately deal with that person's question. A lot of people will be like, oh my gosh, this guy's a heretic. Or, oh my gosh, this guy has doubts about God. He must be an unbeliever and all and all those things, right? I mean, I think that's like historically how the Unfortunately, some some people within local churches have acted. And as a result of that, the person that asked the question, well, the question doesn't get answered and people don't treat him mercifully. And so too often we see people leave to leave the church because they actually go ahead and turn to Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins to answer the question. Well, that's a huge problem because now you have atheists answering the question when Christians should have been there to do it. So we should do as Peter says, and I, I quote this a lot, and so you should already maybe know what I'm going to say here, but I'm going to say it again anyways. 1 Peter 3.15 says what? But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is within you. But do this with gentleness and respect. So give the reason for the hope that's within you, and do so mercifully. Do it with gentleness and with respect. And we be gentle and respectful and merciful to those who doubt, so that when false teachers do come, those who doubt can lean on their brothers and sisters who will actually help lift them up and give them the confidence in their uh, ability to go ahead and contend for the faith. And for those who doubt that are actually unbelievers, well, if we show them mercy, we can actually win them over. If we show them the love of Christ, we can win them over. That's how powerful Christ's love is. So that, that's an imperative. We got to be merciful to those who doubt. There's a fifth thing. We save others by snatching them from the fire. What the, what does that mean? What is what does it mean to snatch others from the fire? Am I going to have to like literally drag people out of hell? Like what's going on here? No. It's it's it means that that we need to be diligent in the great commission and reaching people with the truth of the gospel. It's necessary. It's imperative. Every person is a sinner by nature and sinner by choice. Without Christ, we're lost forever, destined for hell. But those who have been saved by Jesus have been given and have been set free by the truth. And so we need to almost literally interrupt the normal course of unbelievers' lives to show them their need of a Savior. Now, this can take many forms, but it certainly can include uh, you repeatedly sharing the gospel with unbelieving loved ones or coworkers, or even those in your local church who think that they're saved, but that maybe their life uh, doesn't really reflect their salvation. Like They don't live a life that would indicate that they really do believe that Jesus is Messiah. So it's imperative to reach all those people. And some may reject it. But if we never share the gospel, then some might never hear it. So Christ commissions us 
to literally snatch people from the fire, snatch people off the course of their life, which is heading towards hell, and instead point them to him. That's what Christ commissions us to do. So that's how we contend for the faith. We grow in holiness. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We abide in Christ as we await his return. We be merciful to those who doubt, and we snatch unbelievers from the fire. We have to contend for the faith. After giving us this kind of five-step instruction, Jude concludes his letter in just a really nice and beautiful doxology. He says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. We are tasked with contending for the faith in light of the post-Christian and post-truth hostile culture that we live in. If we don't contend for the faith, those things might start influencing the church. Those things might actually seep into the church, just like Jude had to address, just with, like what was going on with the Jewish Christians that Jude was writing to. False teachers had influenced and infiltrated the church, and if we don't stand on guard against this post-Christian and post-truth and hostile culture, then it too might one day influence us. So we have to be, uh, it is imperative that we go and actually contend for the faith every single day. God is good. He's able to keep us from stumbling and from falling into the ways of the world. If we abide in him, he will keep us secure until we are in his presence and he will glorify us when Christ returns. So stay strong, fight the good fight, defend the faith, Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. God bless.